who do you think you are to have a podcast about racial and social justice? Well, I mean, we've never actually been asked that question, but who are any of us not to have a show like this to further the conversation on anti-racism and honor our collective humanity and make change? I mean, won't it take all of our voices? Yeah, and especially when it is such a personal topic to so many of us. That said, if you're listening to our stories, our dive into history, our look at humanity over a whole bunch of episodes, we thought you might like to know a little more about where we are coming from and why we do this work. We recorded the bulk of this episode way back in the spring, after Ahmaud Arbery was killed, but before the video was released, before George Floyd was murdered, before Amy Cooper was called out. But in that time, there's been a huge uptick in our listenership. So welcome to the fold. And in order to welcome you to the fold, we thought this might be a good time to really peel back some layers and release this episode now so you know who we are. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And today we're totally turning this upside down with the fabulous Debbie Shear interviewing us, Sarah and Misasha. So hi, welcome everybody. My name is Debbie Shear and today it is my absolute honor and privilege to get to turn the tables. And really the purpose of today is to reveal a little bit more about the purpose of the Dear White Women podcast. And this is the most exciting part. We're going to get these two Harvard-educated co-hosts behind the podcast to let their hair down a little bit and maybe show us a little bit about themselves that we don't normally see. And some might wonder why two women who look white have a podcast talking about race and who the hosts actually are. So, Thank you for tuning in and let's get into it. So unless you have anything that you want to say right off the gate, I think we'll jump in if that feels good. Okay. Let's do it. Sounds good. Perfect. So one of my questions, and I was fortunate enough to be interviewed by you on your fabulous podcast, and I wanted to ask you then, and I didn't. And so I'm so excited to ask you right now, where in the heck did the title come from? Misasha and I are just like literally pointed know, at each other in the video. We're like, no, you take it. No, you take it. Okay, I'll do um, it unless you want to do it. Should we? Okay, and then let's explain the ridiculous responses we've gotten about the name of the show first and yeah. then talk about where it really came from. All right, because you want to do the responses and then I sure. can go a little into the history. There's, yeah, there's been a couple. One was from a woman we presume she identified as white. It was only via email. She emailed us asking where the name of it came from and told us we were racist for naming our show Dear White Women. So that there's that response. We have also spoken to a black woman who said she liked the title of the show, but then realized that we looked kind of like whitish. And so wanted to click, but then didn't click. And then kept coming back and wanting to click and then not wanting to click because she didn't know if we had substance, if we were going to totally blow over the whole issue of race and be like, no, white people, you're okay. It's okay. And then when she and I finally got together and had a conversation, she's like, oh, no, no, no. Okay, now I get it. I get that what you guys stand for and has been an incredible supporter of the show. Isn't that it? I just have to say that's fascinating. And I'm so grateful that she was honest with you about that, right? You're too whitish. You just look too white to be able to do this show. So good for her for being really open and sincere about that. And I do have a question for the presumably white woman who had emailed you. Did she go into any more detail about why she felt the title was racist? 
I'm trying to remember that email exchange. We went back and forth very thoughtfully, or we went very back thoughtfully on a couple of occasions. And then it didn't seem like she wanted to engage in conversation, just wanted to sort of tell us that we were wrong. And so I hope that she heard what we were trying to say, because I would welcome her into that conversation. But that was as far as we got in terms of why she claimed we were racist, aside from just basically pointing out race. And I think the last one, Misasha likes telling the story too, but when we did our live recording at the Denver Women's March earlier this year, we had a woman come up to us and say, you know, you weren't what we expected. I expected you to be black. And I didn't know if I was going to learn anything from you once I saw you, but I did. So thanks very much. And so it's really interesting to hear the responses. So I'm glad you asked that question. And me, Sasha, if you want to explain why we named our show what we did, that'd be awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the number one question we get. And it's definitely the number one question I get when people are like, oh, you have a podcast about social justice and race. What's it called? And then I say, dear white women. And there's oftentimes like a pause. And I never know what's going to come after that pause. So thank you for asking this question because we get it all the time. So, you know, I think there are several reasons why we called the podcast, Dear White Women, first of all, it definitely makes you think, right? Because it's not the title that, you know, it's a provocative title for a reason. And I think the reason that Sarah, well, okay, a couple of reasons are that Sarah and I have had a lot of conversations about race over the years. And our conversations about race and social justice have shifted, especially once I had my boys. And after 2016, you know, we learned a lot from that election, one, that people can vote against their self-interest, two, that people voted sometimes on a single issue and didn't really, and voted along sort of a mainstream narrative, right? The white, straight, privileged viewpoint, which has been dominant in our country, largely because of our history. And we were particularly surprised, or I was, and I think Sarah was too, but I'm not going to speak for her like I normally do or try to, that the statistics around white women and who they had voted for and college educated white women, nonetheless, so highly educated, probably, you know, have had some time to reflect on, you know, who they were going to vote for and why they were going to vote for that person. And they voted for Donald Trump. And to us, that was very surprising. And then when we started talking more about race and about my kids and my biggest fear for my kids or my husband is to walk out the door and not come back because of the color of their skin, because they're wearing a hoodie. Well, apparently now they don't even need to walk out the door. They can just be in their house and, you know, someone can come in and hurt them in our home and say, and everyone will say that's okay. And it dawned on us that if you didn't know someone who had this fear, you, it's very easy to separate yourself from that fear, to not even engage in it, or to have the privilege of thinking about it or not, when for a lot of people, that is your reality. And we wanted to get people thinking about what if this was your reality? What if it's the person next to you's reality? What if it's your coworkers? What if it's your friend, your sister, you know, anyone and to get people thinking bigger than their own narrative. And for a lot of people, if you're white in this country, you have not had to think about that. You have the privilege of thinking about that. And in particular, we wanted to talk to women because the stories that we talk about a lot involve women and kids and being mothers. And not to say that we are talking directly just to mothers, but it is a different experience in this country to be a woman than a man. And so, you know, that is the genesis of the title. 
And we definitely have listeners who are not white women. We have listeners from a whole bunch of countries that we didn't even know about. We're listening. We have men. We have black men. We have minorities. We have a whole host of people, which is great because we want all those narratives out there. I love that. And I love that it is provocative. I'm sure, as you even said, you probably have lost listeners who won't even click start And, but I hope you've gained listeners, right? Who are willing to be open-minded and and perhaps push themselves. So I love that. And thank you so much for explaining that. I do want to just go back a little bit because you two have a very long history together. And I think that's important. And I think that is important to talk about how you know each other. And because you can feel that you have a really great chemistry when you do the podcast. And I think that probably comes partly because you have a long history of friendship. So if If you don't mind just sharing in it, because I don't know if your viewers know how you met and your friendship. Back in my fashionable days, right, Natasha? (laughs) High fashion, yep. (laughs) Yeah, so we'll have that conversation in the fall about how I've basically never known how to dress myself properly. (laughs) Me, Sasha, is very fashionable. Anyway, long story short, we were, I was a freshman, you were a sophomore in college, and we were walking out of a half Asian people's association, affectionately called HAPA, meeting on campus. I don't know if it was the first time I'd heard of it and been to it. And we both sort of got up in the middle of the meeting when it wasn't our jam and happened to sort of jostle shoulders as we were walking out literally at that door and talked in the hallway and we met and we've been friends ever since. Yeah, I, um, that is, you know, we've lived in Tokyo together. We worked in the same industry. Our, both of us had short lived, well, yours was longer than mine. Mine was very short lived, a career in finance in Tokyo. But, but at least you went into the really interesting career of law. I took a big step up there. Thank you. <laughs> so, and then listened to my mom's frantic weeklies to come back from Tokyo for fear that I would never come back. But on that point, we lived in on college campus for those years that we knew each other. And then we lived in Tokyo at the same time for one year. Mm-hmm. And we have never lived in the same city since. Yeah, that's true. And that, yeah. And we met, what, in 96? Great. So it's been a while. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's important. And I think it lends itself to possibly the direction of the show. I mean, and I don't know if, if people know this either, but you both do have an immigrant parent. And Miss Sasha, you said that you are married to a black man and you have two children who are biracial. And Sarah, you're married to a white Canadian man, but you have two children who are biracial. And so it's always interesting to me when people say, well, you didn't, I didn't want to listen because of the way you sounded, or I didn't want to listen because what you looked like, right? So we have all these assumptions. I'm curious to know from both of you, if, have you experienced racism? And if you have, more specifically, if you're willing to share, because I know that's a very emotional experience, what was that like? For me, I experienced races not in the U.S., but in Japan, at least my most poignant memory of it. I was, from the time I was 10, I would be sent to stay with my grandmother in Japan in lieu of any summer camp. And so they would enroll me in the local Japanese school for a month because the school year didn't end. And so they were like, what do we do with this grandkid? She's going to go to school in this foreign country. And so I think I was in either third or fourth grade. And I was, you know, I had done this before, but I was in the school. My classmates were fantastic. It was the days where you like wear scrunchies and then the matching socks scrunched down, right? In the States, they thought this was like crazy American fashion. My class, we're going back to fashion again, but (laughs) my classmates thought that I was like 
cool. And they would engage with me and we would talk and it was fantastic. And then I was being introduced to the school and I was standing outside next to the school principal and the other kids walked by jeering at me, being like, go home, foreigner, go home, get out of here. You don't belong here. Like they would just say this even in front of the principal. And he just kind of looked at me and nothing. And that was it. And so I remember being like, wow, like I didn't even know how to process it or what to articulate about it. I just remember telling my parents about it. I don't know if anything was done. I just remember feeling that and being like, wow, there's this difference between the in-group of my classmates who knew about me, people who know me directly, and then how I was perceived by other kids who didn't know who I was. And Sarah, and so, I'm curious to know, when you explain that to your parents, do you recall them having a reaction or having any conversation around that? Or was it just something you said? And then like, oftentimes we see it's just, we now move on to the next topic. I would make it up. Don't know. I actually okay. have no memory of how they would have responded. I could make assumptions, but I could be completely yeah. wrong if I did. So I really have no idea. I just remember that feeling right. of, right. what is this, you know, and bad, feeling bad. Yeah. And did that, you said that happened very young. Has that continued to happen in different scenarios in different spaces or? I don't know if that was the reason why I, I had a hard time feeling like I truly fit in everywhere. I felt like in the States, I never fully fit in. I wasn't blonde hair, blue eyed. You know, I had to go to Japanese Saturday school every Saturday. I spent summers a lot in Japan. I was always, I always had friends. I was always very confident. I always had my own thing going, but, and maybe that like, really made me dig for what that was. But then in Japan, I also feel like because I was there perceived as a foreigner also, but who spoke Japanese, I was welcomed because it was a perk. It's like I'd made this effort or I knew enough to communicate and be joking and do like things collaboratively. So, you know, I don't know. I feel like I've carved my own path, whether it's because of that or just because this is my life. I don't know. Thank you. And Misasha, what about you? I would say not in the U.S., at least not growing up. I don't have a memory of that. Growing up in L.A. with a, you know, an established Japanese community there, being half Japanese was unusual, but not totally foreign at the time. Although my dad was very clear that, you know, we were not Japanese American. He was Japanese from Japan. So culturally, it was so different because of the internment camps and the history of Japanese Americans in the U.S., he was like, you are a citizen. At that time, I had dual citizenship. So I was half Japanese, half American. And so for him, that was a big distinction. But then I remember going to Japan in the summers because I also got sent there, although I never went to school because I think my parents were like, we have limits and we can't do that one. But it was, you know, being pointed at, being stared at. My mom tells this story when I was really little. And my grandparents lived in outside of Tokyo. So kind of a biggish city, but no foreigners around really. And so my mom, my dad would have to go to Tokyo for work. And my mom and I would be, you know, sort of left to the whims of my grandparents. And my mom could not speak Japanese, like zero. So they would communicate through hand gestures, which I'm sure was amazing for everyone. But she told the story of how I went to the playground and, you know, I really wanted to play with the kids that were there. And the kids would run away from me because 
I looked different. And she's like, and you couldn't understand why these kids were running away from you because all you wanted to do was play with them. And so you're basically like chasing these kids who are now terrified because there's this like, I was pretty tall then too, like this gigantic foreigner like running after them. So yeah, I don't have those memories outside of Japan really. Great. Well, thank you. I'm curious to know, what do you think you continue to do that perpetuates racism? Right? That is a big question. So I realize I've just asked a huge question, but I think it's important to ask because you're doing that, you have this phenomenal podcast. You're really wanting to push people, right? To, to open that lens and really be reflective and be vulnerable in their conversations. And so I'm just curious if anything comes to the forefront that you know you do that maybe is a product of your privilege and you're working on it or however you want to share. Yeah. So I definitely have something to share. I mean, I don't know if it's specific, but I feel like when I used to live in major cities, I felt more like this complete version of myself where I was not as aware of my identity and I just was. And over the last, over a decade, I've lived in predominantly white areas. And I caught myself, I'm going to tell one story about my kids. One of the reasons we left where we used to live was because my children saw, and I don't know which one of these stories is worse, saw a black man crossing the street and said, look, mama, it's President Obama. And then they saw an Asian woman crossing a street at a different time and said, look, it's grandma. And I was like, okay, there's not enough diversity. I get that they're aware then of the general shell of what each of these characters in their life looks like, but they need to understand that that's not the only person out there. And so I was surprised when we moved to Denver at my excitement, grabbing my husband, being like, there are three Asian people on our block. And I was like, holy smokes, what is wrong with me? But I notice race more now that I'm not in a diverse area. And I could tell that exposure matters in my life. If it matters to me, I'm sure I'm not the only one, that if you're surrounded by people who all look the same, you're going to notice difference more. And so I think for a while, I was checking myself being like, oh, wow, like I'd notice, oh, there's a black man. Oh, there's an Asian woman or there's an Asian dude. I would really notice everybody different. And I don't know, it's challenged me to be like, does that mean I'm more or less racist that I'm noticing? Of course, we all do racist things. I, there's no doubt that I do. I was been raised in this system, right? No matter how much I talk about it, I'm sure I probably could have more diverse friends. But even the fact that I'm sitting there thinking, well, I want to have my kids have more diverse friends, but how do they make more diverse friends in a community? Do you force that? Like just having these conversations, I don't know if that makes it better or worse to consciously try to craft that world because it's not as natural for us. Misashi and I talk about like, I live in this really white world and it's very opposite than the world you live in. So I don't have a specific answer, but I think it's in my, like, every day. Yeah, thank you. I'm like, does that make me a better or worse person? And then I want affirmation, right? Then it's like, I'm vulnerable right now saying this. Right. And it sucks, but it's hard. And these are the uncomfortable conversations right. we talk and about. And that's why these questions have to be asked, right? Because you want people to be able to do this work. And, you, and the beautiful thing that just happened is you just admitted how hard this work is, right? You're feeling super vulnerable. Oh, crap. Am I still a good person? Will they still like me? I mean, that's just an innate human thing. I don't think we can ever escape that. And so I love that you just did that. So thank you. I think that's a really important for people to hear. Thank you for that. So Sarah knows my husband, but my husband is like a regular check on how racist I am on any given day, apparently, because he likes to remind me 
that he's black and that I'm not. And that by virtue of that alone, it's harder for me to understand how privileged some things even sound coming out of my mouth. And I remember one instance in particular, and this was back when I owned the bar studio and like the fitness studio, and I've been in fitness for a long time. And especially boutique fitness is largely white. You know, I was one of the few, even part minority owners, franchise owners in this. And I remember, you know, recruiting instructors and my husband looked at me and he's like, well, where are the black ones? I'm like, black fitness instructors? I was like, that's like a unicorn. Like they don't, I wouldn't even know where to find black fitness instructors. He's like, well, maybe you're not looking hard enough. Like, have you really? And I was like, and that really checked me because my default was to be like, what do you mean? That just doesn't exist here. And he was right. Like I had some preconceived notions what this fitness world was like. And I had the ability to change that. And I wasn't, you know, and so that to me was really big. And one of those moments where I had to sit with that and be like, I have all these things that I feel so strongly about. And yet when I have the ability to change that, what am I really doing? And so, yeah, so we have those conversations regularly. And especially now that Kenya Barris's new show came out, Black AF on Netflix, like my, we've been watching that regularly. And my husband's like, why are you laughing at that? <laughs> because this is what happens in our house. So, but it's a good reminder. And so the short answer is yes. And, you know, there's a lot. Yes. Thanks for sharing that. I'm curious to know if you both, do you both consider yourselves a person of color as you move through the world? Is that something that comes to mind? Or if someone says that to you, is that a, is, does that feel like it fits or does it feel like you're trying to put on a sweater that somebody knitted that was really meant for the wrong person? I think, Sasha, you have a strong answer for this. <laughs> well, I asked my husband this question. And he was like, hell no. <laughs> no, you are not. And he was like, let me tell you why. He said, because that is more of how the world perceives you. And he's like, you know, you have a hard enough time having people believe looking at you that you are anything but 100% white, which is, you know, true, unless they think I'm Russian because of my name, you know, yay, parents who make up your name. But it's great now. I'm just kidding. I love it, mom and dad. But it's true. Like, I don't see myself as a person of color. I don't think anyone sees me as that. And I think that is an issue of perception. So and Sarah and I have talked about this, like at length. So yeah, I, I was asked to question. be like a mentor for the women of color in podcasts. And I was like, are you sure it's okay for me <laughs> to be a mentor? And they took me on anyway. But it was interesting because I made sure to push back because I didn't think I had that title. Thank you. So I'm curious to know what you both, you know, there's this term of passing. And I know in queer culture, you know, I know what that term means when we talk about it within the context of the LGBTQ community. But I'm curious to know what, when you hear that term, what does that mean to you? You know, passing or do you pass? And, and does that like churn up anything for you? I remember, I don't remember who it was having this conversation with, but, and it might've been you, in fact, Debbie, but somebody had said the term passing implies a hierarchy because you're passing as something better than, as a, right? And so I remember always using that phrase and then hearing that definition of it or that perspective of it and being like, oh, 
I don't want to use that phrase anymore. And I think in some ways for me personally, this idea of passing or being perceived or showing up as presenting as white, it bothers me if I'm seen as white because I feel like my Japanese culture is a huge part of my identity and who I am. And my mom worked so hard to make sure I learned the language and the culture and I mean, all of this stuff that I want people to know. And yet I think, as I said, for the last decade, I've been living in areas where I haven't used the language. I haven't taught my kids. It's like this dry spell. It was sucked out of me. And I felt like it actually took some of my identity away for a long time until I really stepped in to reclaim it. So I don't want to pass or present as just white for me. Yeah. And I feel like passing, I agree. It is interesting when you say hierarchy, because when I hear that phrase, I immediately think of safety, right? So people are passing to be safe because if you're perceived as white in our country, you are safe. That's just the, the, that is the way it is. And so it's interesting how you bring that up and that it really does, it closes off or dismisses an entire like part of who you are at your core. So thank you for pulling that kind of uh, teasing that out a little bit, because I think it's a phrase that a lot of people use. And I know my youngest, I have two boys, as you both know, who are adopted. My youngest is biracial and he, for lack of a better would people don't know that he's black? Well, let me rephrase that. White people don't know that he's black. Black people seem to absolutely 100% know that he's black. But the, it's fascinating to see what happens in the summer when his hair gets lighter and his skin gets darker in the comments and who they come from. So the whole concept of passing and presenting is a very interesting thing. And I like that you pointed it out in the LGBTQ community too, because Mm -hmm. that is also a sense of safety in some ways. You know, if they're, if people are more flamboyant or like they're, they're owning their identity, whatever, like that sense of safety is, that's a really interesting way to put it. Yeah. So, you know, you both are parents and I'm sure I could guess that most of what you do is done because, well, is motivated by our children, right? We want to create a better world for our children. And right now that's feeling really scary. So I'm just curious if your show could have just one impact on your children's lives, what would it be? And you can give more than one because that's a little bit, I've, I've tried <laughs> to limit you and I don't want to do that. You know, I actually, in prep for this, had asked my kiddos, I said, if there was one thing that you wanted to take from the fact that you wanted to learn from the fact that mom does this show, what would it be? And one of them answered, I like that I'm smart. Like I'm not just like, I'm more aware is what she said. I'm trying to remember her exact words and I'm failing obviously, but uh, it was along the lines of, I, I'm glad that I am more aware of things that I shouldn't do. Like, I know not to use the N word. I know that things aren't fair. And if you didn't talk to me about it, I would just hear it from school and it's going to be a lot more generic is what she said. And so I thought that was cool, especially because my kids present as white. There's not as much of a Japanese, you know, any ethnic look about them. And so for them to feel like they're learning more and being better allies the best they can and learning more about how the world really works as opposed to hiding it, hiding some of these sort of ugly realities. I think preparing them for that would be great. Obviously, it would be nice if we could change more people's minds and change the future of elections and change how parents raise kids. But, you know, let's start with just how my kids can get impacted in their day-to-day lives because we talk about this stuff all the time because of the show. That's great. Thank you. What about you, Misasha? What would be your... 
Well, and I think, you know, I love, Sarah, your answer and what, you know, your kids said. And I love that you can ask your kids that because I would definitely, my kids are too young still. They'd be like, what? You have a podcast? Are you famous? Which is exactly what they asked me the other day. So, you know, and my kids present as Black or at the very least multiracial. No one can kind of discern, especially my younger one is a little bit trickier, I think, if you don't know, you know, me and his father. But because they present as Black or multiracial, I think that what I would like to have come out of this podcast is that those fears that I talked about that I have for my kids, I would like for them to not have those same fears for their kids, at least in the same level, you know, which is difficult. And I know change takes time, especially when a lot of that is really built into the structures of our society society. But we are sort of at a pivotal moment now, too, where we a lot of what we took for granted is gone. And so, you know, maybe this is where change really comes from as well. So to have them not have those same fears for their kids, or maybe their kids not to have those same fears for their kids would be one thing that I would like to have come out of this podcast. That's great. I'm curious to know when, and I'm just going to say this, ask this question in a pretty, it might seem like it's painfully blunt, but When did you start to care about race? Because, okay, I'm going to pause there. (laughs) I won't won't ask a question and follow it up with another question. (laughs) That's not fair. But I'll just leave it open. And I think we're going to have a good conversation about this. I think race has been in and out of my mind loosely, but never, if I'm perfectly honest, anything that I engaged with, grappled with, looked at myself in the mirror to think about until Misasha married her husband. Right. It was, I had, it was funny because then I said to, to you, Misasha, a long time ago, I was just like, it's so weird that I'm in this conversation with you about race and it's because of you, which it absolutely is. I'm like, I don't know if I ever really engaged. And then I'm like, oh, wait, I sang in a gospel choir celebrating black history in college. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, right. We have talked about race. And then, you know, so I'm realizing that it has been something that I have engaged with and have thought about because we've had race conversations. I got kicked out of the, it was like a mutiny in the gospel choir because too many white-ish people were in it and it was supposed to be celebrating black histories. So we've had race conversations in my, in like my circle. And I remember in college, a, a friend of mine who's black was teaching me the black walk as we're walking down the street, you know, like just we've played around with talking about it. I don't think the fear was t- and even then my friends talked about how their brother's heads got slammed into the car hood when the cops thought and he, like he had his keys in his hand, but they were like, no, this is too nice of a car for you because you're black and that must not be your... So I'd heard these stories, but my real fear, my emotions about race weren't tapped until me, Sasha, married her husband. And it became a real, real fear that people in my life who I love would get hurt because of race. So I feel like there was that separate, it was like sinking in from my brain downwards to my heart through my life, but it's hit it now because of you, my friend. You know, as you were talking, Sarah, I was thinking about what was sort of the earliest that I can remember thinking about race or really getting, really focusing on race in the same way that we do now. And, you know, I remember my mom taught us, you know, she used to sing with us when we were little and just teach us random songs like, you know, from Annie and stuff. But she taught us We Shall Overcome, which I'm sure all five-year-olds, you know, sing with their mom. (laughs) And I was like, oh, that's an interesting memory. But, you know, I grew up the granddaughter of a Civil War historian who focused on, obviously, this is the white side, not the Japanese side, but who focused on 
narratives of people whose voices didn't get heard. So his narratives were largely about women and he would use personal narratives. So the diary accounts that he would find of women and free blacks who did not have their stories told and he put them into an anthology really. And that was a lot of his work towards his scholarship. You know, and I think about the stories that we had heard growing, you know, both my grandparents were from the South and grew up in small town South, Mississippi and Tennessee. And, you know, I grew up hearing these stories from my grandparents. You know, my grandfather had seen the aftermath of a lynching. You know, he was in small town Tennessee and his uncle or someone was driving him his friend. And so they saw, you know, the aftermath of a lynching and the friend made some highly racist comment about it. And my grandfather's uncle stopped the car and is like, if you're going to say that, you can get out and walk back. And so this history in our family of really focused on race and equality. And my grandfather also would tell the story of when my mom got sick and they were in the South and they went to the doctor and they went and sat in a waiting room. And the nurse was like, came out and was like, you guys can't sit here. This is the colored waiting room. And my grandfather looked at her and is like, we're sitting right here. So you can treat my daughter and we're sitting here. So I think there's been a lot of history in our family of doing that. And so I remember having that taught to me throughout my childhood, but then going to college and I was really focused on the the Asian side of my heritage and working in Japan and all of that. And it didn't come back to that racial equality in the U.S. again, really until law school, I think, and focusing on what I could do pro bono wise and civil rights. And I, you know, I was thinking about who I spent time with in law school and it was largely the Black Law Students Association and everyone I knew from California who were largely Asian. And then right after that, I met my husband. So it's kind of been like Sarah, it's been a trajectory. It has not been a straight line in thinking about race. Yeah. I appreciate you both sharing that because I think what I have seen, and maybe you've seen the same thing, you know, after 2016, a lot of people, specifically white women or women who are not women of color, started to really embrace these conversations, right? And really started to care. And what was fascinating to me is they started to say things about race that were suddenly being listened to, even though black women and women of color had been saying these things forever and nobody was listening or nobody cared. And so I do think, and I try to check myself with the same thing, like, well, when did this become so important and such a part of my, you know, internal being that I, where it really does mean something. And I think that I appreciate you both sharing. And I really, Sarah, I just want to say, you know, I think you highlight the fact that if you don't know someone, if there isn't someone who you love, right, and care about, it can be very easy to step in and out of that world and use your privilege when it benefits you to not have to deal and then to go back in when it feels right or maybe you might get something out of it, right? We've all seen this. I mean, we have to be talking about it, right? With the thousands of podcasts that started and so many white women getting a lot of attention and money talking about race. So thank you both for sharing. I think it's so layered. It's so deep. And I just think it's a really important check to step back and go, when did I actually really start caring and, and putting in the labor 
right, that so many black women and women of color have been putting in from day one, when did I start to step up and put in the labor? So thank you for that. I'm curious how you consider yourself. You know, we have all these words floating around. We have activist, we have ally, we have accomplice. Do any of those words resonate with you when you think about this work and what you have committed to doing with this podcast? I mean, for me at this stage, it's interesting you said that because when I hashtag some of the posts for our podcast, social justice podcasts does not have many like tags, right? But if you type in social justice warrior, there's like 43,000, but I can never bring myself to do it because I'm not a freaking warrior. <laughs> like I'm not out there. There are people who are really engaging, doing real work, affecting real people. And I cannot with any good conscience claim that I'm at that level. I would love to be, but I'm not there. And I'm really cautious about calling myself. I would like to be an ally. If I can earn the respect of people, and so that same woman who said, I didn't listen to your podcast because I saw who you were, she actually said, I consider you an ally. You are there using your voice, putting this in, you've done it consistently for, and at this point, we are now over a year into our podcast. You are doing the work, doing the research, using your voice, coming out and and hosting events. Like, And she's like, you're an ally. So it was only at that point that I felt like I could even consider having earned that title. I can't say that for my, I didn't feel comfortable saying that for myself. If I can be considered an ally, I would be honored. Yes, I would like to be that for sure. What about you, Misasha? I think the same, actually. I don't, I consider there being a lot of physical, emotional, mental work that goes into being an activist or someone who's on those front lines. And I deeply admire anyone who is doing that. I don't think I am there, hopefully at some point. But yes, I would like to be an ally. And I feel like that is what, you know, like Sarah, I'm working towards as well. Anecdotally, I tell my husband that, you know, I'm working towards that role because I keep three black men and boys like alive every day in our house. But, you know, I think there's a lot of learning I still need to do. And it is definitely a journey. But what I love about what we can do on the podcast is to really sort of be a megaphone and give people a platform to get their voice out and to hopefully support all voices in that way. Great. And I think what you said about it being a journey is right. I don't think it's an arrived kind of thing. I don't like the phrase woke. I don't think I'll ever get there fully because there's always more to learn and do. So it is this journey. Right. And I think it's, you know, anytime you have labels, right, that's always risky. And, you know, you're involved in a slippery slope. But I think when I talk to women who, like you had said, you know, if somebody if a woman of color tells me that she views me as an activist or an ally, excuse me, then great. That's her perception and that's her lived experience, right? And I think as we move through the world, we don't need to use those labels. People in those communities will get a sense of what we're trying to do or not, right? And then that's really what's important. I'm very curious to know how you both are feeling right now, just in where we sit in the world today. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but are you know are you feeling hopeful? And if so, why? And then are you when do you feel defeated? Right? I think as humans, we all feel you know it's this kind of flow of constant emotions. But when do you feel the most hopeful? And when do you just feel like oh shit? Really? (laughs) Oh, Debbie. It's a really (laughs) good question. (laughs) 
I mean, as evidenced by, you know, child rearing even, you can feel both within seconds of each other. Mm-hmm. I think in anything I talk about, you know, change comes from both levels. It comes from like that grassroots person to person internal change level, and then the top down governmental regulatory corporate level. And I think you need both to meet in the same effort in order to make lasting change. And so I think I feel the most hopeful right now lately when I have a conversation or someone writes us saying that made a difference or, you know, I see things differently now because of X, Y, Z, you know, that makes me feel like, wow, there's still hope. People can change. And I guess I get inspired people in politics who are giving lip service to stuff, but I'm most terrified, is that the right word, about what might happen in November. I honestly, when I think about the elections and the power that we each have to make a difference in that election, but the number of people who don't see that, use that power, or think about how to use that power because I'm not sure they understand the disproportionate influence that the top of our political system and the top of our corporations and how all of that system is intertwined. If you don't see that or believe that that matters, they're not going to put weight into their internal decision-making process either. And I guess that part is where I feel the most scared. Yeah. Thank you for that. So this is a really good question and a difficult one. You know, I, I think I feel the most hopeful when people start to talk about different narratives. I see more media coverage of different narratives. I see people I know talk about different narratives. I see people see how communities are both smaller and bigger than we thought. And I think, you know, right now where there is so much going on, you know, there's a lot of change in everyone's community. And I think people hopefully thinking beyond just themselves and their nuclear families and seeing the impact of everything that is going on right now on a whole host of different people. So the fact that we have more than one narrative out there that's being talked about, I think is what makes me hopeful that we will continue to grow that conversation. Like Sarah, I mean, November is very scary for me. And, you know, I was telling Sarah this when we were talking yesterday, but the lawyer side in me is just very concerned about our government and the powers in our government and the power grab that happens when people aren't looking or when people are being told things that are not true. And I think that there are people out there who are trying to spread the word about how this can deeply roll back our rights as citizens, as global citizens, but as American citizens or even people just living in our country, but I don't think their voices are getting heard in the way that they should be. And while their voices aren't getting heard, more and more rights are being taken away slowly through all of the branches of our government. And I'm worried that that will continue in November and then be largely unchecked for four more years. And so that to me is, I can't even, my brain doesn't get past that point because it just can't go there. It's sort of like imagining the end of the universe type thing. It does kind of feel like we've seen the beginning of the end, but then I keep wanting to be hopeful because we're humans and we're hopeful and we can sort of... Yes, at least try to hope, right? And live in love and all the things. But it's scary. It's crazy times right now. It is scary. So I have one more question and then I'll open it up to you two. You might have questions for each other. I don't know, or just things that you think are really important. So someone stumbles upon your podcast and they listen. What is the one thing, the one message, regardless of the topic that they listen to, 
that you want them to walk away from. You want them to fully engage. So what is the one message that you hope they take away from your podcast? I have two. We'll let you have two. Okay, <laughs> it's your it. show. Okay, I'm going to let two. you have two. <laughs> one is that we rise by lifting others. We need to just remember that we're all in it together and it's not just about us. And then the second thing is that there's, much as I don't believe in the idea of fake news, I do believe there's more than one narrative. There's more than one way to see the same story. And it's important for us to just ask ourselves or take that moment to ask if there might be another way to interpret a certain situation. Right. Thank you. I think for me, it's listening. You know, it's, there is a lot of power. I thought for sure you were going to say this. So I was like, oh, she didn't say it. So I'm going to say it right now. There is so much power in just shutting up and listening and we don't do it enough. I think largely we try and talk over each other. We try and convince each other what things should be, but everyone's experience is different and unique. And that is what forms our communities and societies. And so we need to continue to listen to each other. And I think that's really important. I heard you and I like that, Misasha. <laughs> See, I was Look listening you. to Look you. Look at you. <laughs> she listened. That's amazing. Well, I want to thank you both for, first of all, just trusting me enough and asking me to do this. And I really want to thank you for opening up and your willingness to be vulnerable and kind of raw. This is a big conversations that have a lot of emotional power behind them. And I'm really grateful. And I think your listeners will be really grateful to see this and hear this side of you that they maybe don't get when they listen to your amazingly wonderful podcast. So thank you both so much. Thank you, Debbie. And please promote yourself for a second because you are actually yes. <laughs> an incredible host, an incredible MC. You are a great human being. And can you tell people where to find you because you out there as a humorist and oh, event you. facilitator and everything. And I really am so grateful for you to take this time. To yes, I appreciate thank that. you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So Facebook and Instagram, and those are the only two social media things I really know about. <laughs> I'm sure there's 62 others. I can be found at Debbie Shear Speaks. And I appreciate you saying that I'm a, I'm a humorist and a speaker. And I think now more than ever, we need to weave humor throughout these really difficult conversations that we need to keep having. So I appreciate you giving that a shout out, letting me do that. Thank you. Absolutely. If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist, identity-affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Woman Podcast. And we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation. 